Well, we are so glad that you're here, and thank you for being here the second week of Lost in Love. And I want to just thank you as a church family for your support uh, and your kindness and what has been a difficult week for my family. Most of you know that uh, on Tuesday, uh, my grandpa and my dad's dad went home to be with the Lord uh, Tuesday morning. And we, we knew his health was declining, of course, uh, but it's never easy to say goodbye. And so I just want to thank uh, you for all of the cards and the emails and the letters and the flood of support that's come in uh, for us as a family. Um, you have made this easier to deal with, and we want to thank you, uh, not only for myself, but for my dad and for the rest of the family. Uh, thank you from our heart uh, for all of your kindness in this time. And our series is called Lost in Love, and last week we talked about the fact that what we really need in our love relationships is an example, someone to show us how to do love because love isn't easy. And we talked about some of the ways uh, that Jesus has taught us how to love. And this week, to be honest with you, I had kind of an idea where I was going to uh, take the talk. And when, when I branded the series, I kind of knew where we were going this week. And it's kind of the case that when something major happens in your life, you have some sort of major life shakeup. A lot of times, uh, God will get you thinking about something, um, and definitely God started redirecting my thoughts this week away from what I had originally planned on speaking about, and I hope you don't mind. I'm kind of taking this talk a little bit different direction. We're still talking about lost in love. As a matter of fact, what God has really been laying on my heart fits well with what we're talking about, but it is a little different, and uh, so I, I hope you'll hang with me. It's one of those things that when, when you have an experience like what my family's experienced uh, this week, about the only thing I can do right now, what I have left in my heart to do is just to get in front of you and to tell you what's in my heart. That's about all I can do. So that's what I'm going to be doing this week, and I hope you'll uh, bear with me. It's a simple talk, but hopefully it'll be helpful for you. When I, uh, when I look back on my grandpa's life, he wasn't a perfect man, but uh, to me, he was a hero. And uh, I know many of you felt the same way about him. He, he pastored the same church in Fort Worth for almost 50 years, and then he uh, right at the time when he sort of retired, went into sort of a semi-retirement, he moved to Wichita, and he was our care pastor for 13 years after that. Um, so, but it wasn't just his ministry that made him a hero to me. It was just the kind of man that he was. My grandpa, to me, was what, uh, what a man should be. You know, he, he had this incredible balance in his life. On the one hand, he was, a, he was kind of a tough guy in the sense that he was a hard worker, uh, and his, his hands were never soft. He always had roughened hands because he was always out on the tractor or doing something. My, my, my grandma and grandpa in their house in Fort Worth, behind their house, was two acres of, of land. And my, my grandpa would always plant lots of stuff on there. There was always corn and blackberries and tomatoes and cabbage and whatever else he decided to plant that specific year. Watermelon, almost always. And, uh, but he would often be out there on his old Ford tractor that, as I recall, didn't have uh, good brakes on it. But he'd be out there on his Ford tractor, and he'd be plowing that two acres. And my memories of him are always in a, in a white button-down dress shirt and black dress slacks on that tractor because my grandpa was always ready to go into the church anytime he needed to. Anytime somebody called him, he was ready to go to the church or the hospital, so he's always dressed up. I don't ever remember seeing my grandpa on that tractor in jeans. He was always in dress clothes uh, working, that, working that tractor. And that was my grandpa. He was, he was kind of a tough guy in that he was a hard worker, but on the other side, he had a t an incredibly soft heart, an incredibly tender heart. He had a, a tremendous balance in life. And when I look back on his life, to me, he was a hero. And when I, when I think about his impact on my life and his impact on, on uh, my dad's life, 
and the rest of our family, on this church, on this church in Texas. I'll always think of him that way. So when I got ready to do this message and I started thinking about being lost in love, I thought about my life and my own personal journey. I'm, I'm 31, almost 32. I've got hopefully a lot of living yet to do. Uh, I got to thinking about the fact, I wonder, I wonder what it would take for me to leave a legacy like that. I wonder what would be necessary for me to incorporate into my life so that the people that I love would someday view me as having had such an impact on their lives that I was a sort of hero to them. Because that's the kind of legacy I want to I leave. I want my kids and my grandkids to, to think of me that way. My, my dad is a fan of a movie called It's a Wonderful Life. You've probably heard him talk about it from time to time up here. I suppose they play that movie about every year, right, at Christmas time. And the story in the movie, of course, you've got George Bailey, and George Bailey's going through some rough stuff, and he hits a point at which he says, I wish I'd never been born, right? And at that point, an angel comes along and shows him what his life would, would, or what the world would be like if he had never been born. And he realizes what an impact his life has made on this world. And I want to make that kind of impact. Frankly, I want to leave the world better than I found it, if possible, because I want my life to have made a difference. I want to be a hero in the people's lives that I love. But frankly, and just being honest with you, when we talk about being lost in love, perhaps one of the biggest ways that I get lost in my love relationships are in those moments when I find myself falling short of that standard. When I recognize in myself that I'm not doing what is necessary to be that hero in the lives of the people that I love. And so we're going to talk about it this week. And, and, and just as we're kind of getting to that discussion, can we just agree together that today there's kind of a worldwide shortage of heroes? Have you noticed that? In Genesis 2.18 and I told you this was not going not to be a, a series on romantic relationships. But in Genesis 2.18, God has just created uh, Adam a little bit earlier. Now he's getting ready to create Eve. And this is what God says. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. That word helper is super important. And, and, and if you're married in this room, uh, uh, put the antenna up here for a second. Because this is a really important thing to understand. The word helper actually has two meanings. It's, it's a word that, has, that, that brings along with it two different responsibilities. On the one side, the word helper means, uh, in, in the Hebrew, that word means a companion, somebody who goes alongside a, a fellow traveler, right? So that's, and we kind of get that. When we talk about marriage or close relationships, we get that idea of companionship. We're well aware of that. But the other meaning of the word, and it brings along both, the other meaning of the word is a, a hero, a rescuer, someone who helps you out when you're in trouble. As a matter of fact, if we put those two together, the idea, and if you're married in this room, God has called you to be a companion hero, one who goes alongside and then also helps that person out if they need help. In fact, that, that word is often, often used in the Old Testament to reference God. So if you think about it, that is what we've been called to be. And that is God's solution. Here's what I want you to think about. That is God's solution to being alone. God says, it's not good the man should be, be alone. I'll create companion heroes. I'm going to create someone in your life who's going to go alongside and be there for you. So does it not seem odd to you that in an age where we are more electronically and technologically connected than ever, that if you listen to people talk about what it's like to be them, they're more alone than ever? It's because, frankly, as a culture, we're not doing a very good job at being heroes. So what I want to do is talk to you a little bit about... Uh, that idea, how to be a hero in someone's life. And I want to take you back to the Bible. And Luke chapter 10 is where we're going. 
And in this chapter, Jesus is going to tell a story in a response to a question that he gets asked. And we're going to learn a lot about what it means to truly be a hero. And what is the coolest thing that I think we're going to learn is we're going to learn that anybody can be. I know I've failed a lot in life. There are a lot of things that I've done wrong. Like my dad says, when he's up here, he says, I can't be perfect for 10 minutes. I guarantee you I'm in the same boat, right? But the Bible's going to teach us that anybody can be a hero in a relationship, and that's what we're going to go with. So I'm going to start here in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25, and it says, one day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Now, I just want to set this up here. This guy was not asking Jesus this question because he had some sort of sincere drive to understand something. He's asking Jesus to make it make sense. These religious teachers were very uncomfortable with Jesus because when Jesus came on the scene, he shook up the entire religious establishment. He really made life difficult because they had set up a structure that really was not, was not scriptural. They had set up some extra structures. I don't know if you know anybody who's an extra strength Christian, but that's what these people were. They had, they had built some extra structure into their uh, religion, and Jesus was kind of messing with that. So they would come, and they would try to trap him, ask him some sort of question that he wouldn't have a good answer for, or get him to contradict himself or something like that, and that's what, the, that's what was happening here. So the, the guy asked him, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now remember, this guy's an expert in the law of Moses, so Jesus turns it right around, and he says, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it, Right? And so he answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered him and said, right, do that and you will live. Now, have you ever asked somebody a question, you expected a really long protracted answer, and they gave you like the shortest answer in the world, and for a second you were, you were almost stunned, Right? Because you didn't know how to, an- how to handle that. And then you come right back and you're like, but wait a minute, I have, I have, I have more questions than that. That's exactly what happened to this guy. And he, you know, Jesus said, well, you know, you're an expert in the law of Moses. You tell me, what does the law of Moses say about what it's going to take to inherit eternal life? Well, you know, it says that i got to love God with everything I have, love my neighbor like myself. And Jesus said, sure, there you go. Sounds like a good plan to me. And, and all of a sudden, he says, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. i got, I got a question for you. Who is my neighbor? Now, that question doesn't mean a lot, an awful lot to us in our culture because, you know, neighbor, we, the connotation we have for neighbors is just the people that live next door to you and so forth. But, but you have to remember that for these people, they had read the Old Testament law. They understood that they had a lot of responsibility to be there for their neighbors. And so what the Jewish people had done is they had actually gotten very syntactical about this. They had decided who, okay, you are my neighbor, but you're not so much. I don't really want to love you very much. So you're not my neighbor, but this guy, I can love him, and I can love this gal. They're nice people. So you guys are my neighbor, but not so much these people. And they had really set it up, right? But there was nothing in the, in, in the, in the law of Moses that said they had a right to do that. And so now he's going to go ahead and, and, and hedge his bets. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this is how Jesus answered. He told a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. Now, going from Jerusalem to Jericho was something you did not do alone, right? No matter what city you live in in the United States, you know there are some places that you just do not go by yourself at night, right? Because it's dangerous. Well, if you were living in these times, you would understand that when somebody says this person was going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, right, red flags ought to go off and say, well, he should have taken somebody with him right? Because it was a dangerous place. There were hills and curves in the road, and the visibility wasn't so hot. And so a lot of times, thieves and robbers would kind of find a crevice to hang out in, and as soon as they saw somebody all by themselves, they'd go out, and they would attack that person. So it was common, and when Jesus was telling the story, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. And it says, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. Now, by chance, 
a priest. This is the pastor. He came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed over to the other side of the road and passed him by. And then a temple assistant, this would have been like a church staffer. He walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Now this is when everybody's jaw drops, because Jesus is talking about the least likely person in the world to be a hero in a Jewish teacher's story, right? Because Samaritans and Jews, they did not get along. The Samaritans, at a certain point, there was a little bit of political issues within Israel, and you had what once was a, was a united kingdom, it splits up, and it really split up over the fact that Solomon, King Solomon, he, he made some really bad political decisions, and his son didn't, didn't back off from those decisions uh, when he came to power, and so as a result, the kingdom split, and then you have some of the people in the northern kingdom, which was the kingdom that split off, some of the people in the northern kingdom started identifying themselves as Samaritans. They, they, they intermarried with other cultures, and, and the cultures that they intermarried with, they brought their gods into, into their worship. And so for the people in the southern kingdom, the Samaritans were k- kind of like Jewish people, but they had totally turned on their, on their heritage. They were kind of turncoats as far as they were concerned. And so they really had a, a seething internal hate towards those people. And making matters worse. I mean, here's the thing. At that point, you have this incredible Jewish hostility towards the Samaritans, and then they both go into exile for a while. They both are taken off into captivity, and then at a certain point, they come back into the land. Now you have the Samaritans. uh, They're up here, and and the Jewish people are down here. The Samaritans come to the Jewish people, and they say, hey, you know, let's let's let bygones be bygones. One of the first things we got to do is obviously rebuild the temple, so why don't you let us help? And the Jewish people said, I don't think so. We don't need your help. Go back to where you belong, right? We don't need you. You guys or bad news, right? And so now you got the Samaritans, they hate the Jews because why would they be so mean to them? They were trying to help. And the, the Jews, they hate the Samaritans. As a matter of fact, the Jews developed a racial prejudice against the Samaritans and started using slurs and epithets. They called the Samaritans dogs. There was a real tension between these two people groups. So imagine now Jesus who is viewed, even though he's God, these religious teachers, don't, they don't buy that. They just view him as a, as a, as a Jewish teacher. So now you, you have them talking to this Jewish teacher who says, okay, so here's the Jewish pastor. He comes along, sees this guy beaten up, bleeding, broken, and walks on by. Church staffer comes by, does the same thing. And a Samaritan, right, and all, man, when he says Samaritan, man, bam, here comes the racism. Flags coming up for these, for these guys listening to him talk. And the Samaritan comes over and has compassion on him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. And the next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now. Jesus is going to ask a real pointed question. Which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And this is where it sticks in his throat, right? This teacher of the religious law, he can't bring himself to say Samaritans, right? Because that's that's taking him too far beyond his prejudice. All he can say is, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, go and do the same. See, here's the thing. This teacher of the religious law, he saw himself as a hero. And he was, this, he was an expert on the scriptures. He knew how to make people do what God wanted him to do, right? 
And what God was sharing through the story is that just because you're a pastor doesn't mean you're a hero. Just because you're somebody who understands the Bible doesn't mean you're a hero. Anybody can be a hero, even the least likely person on the list. The factor is not whether you have a pedigree or whether you have pastor after your name. The factor is whether you're able to have compassion. Often, I get asked a a difficult question. Whether I'm standing next to the casket of a, of a young child or, or I'm talking to someone who's just been diagnosed with cancer, someone whose spouse has cheated on them and is leaving, and they say, Jonathan, pastor, why do bad things like this happen to people who haven't done anything wrong? Why, Jonathan, why, when I have tried to honor God, would God let something like this happen to me? And the answer is simple, but it's not very comforting. The answer is that we live in a broken world. The Bible says that when Adam sinned, sin entered into the world, and the world ceased to operate as God wanted it to operate, it's a broken world. So that's the answer. But that doesn't bring us comfort. When we're at a funeral, that doesn't bring us comfort. When we have to face the diagnosis, that doesn't bring us comfort. Can I tell you, the the thing about it is, the reason that we struggle with this is because neither you nor I have what it will take to fix this broken world. The only thing that we have that we can bring to the table that can actually comfort people that live in a broken world is compassion. See, the Samaritan couldn't unbruise this guy. He couldn't, he couldn't make him not be robbed. He couldn't fix everything that had happened to him unfairly. But what he had to offer was compassion, and that's what made him a hero. So what I want to do in the time that we have left is I just want to walk you through three elements of compassion that we find in this story. Three really simple things. That if you put these into place in your life, if you make a decision that you're going to pay attention to these three things, uh, you can make compassion be a first priority in your life and you can be a hero in the lives of the people that you love. Here's the first one. First element of compassion is the willingness to move toward the need instead of away from it. First element is being able to, to be motivated to move toward the need instead of away from it. I have a, a brother who's just a couple years younger than I. And he and his wife are both experienced, seasoned, talented paramedics. They are first responders. And they do a fantastic job. And what makes a first responder accept, an exceptional person is that they move toward the need while the rest of us tend to move away from it. That's not to say that we, we don't try to help people, but first responders are by nature, by their occupation, by their choice, by their training, people who have made a decision that when there is danger, they go into the danger because that is what they do. Now, we could argue about who is a hero, right? I could tell you, what my, you know, one of my heroes, you could say, I don't think that person really deserves to be a hero. We could talk about political figures or religious leaders, and we could argue back and forth who's a hero. But I will stay here for the next week if I have to and argue with you that first responders are heroes. I believe that in my heart. I will always believe that in my heart. Yeah. And it is for that reason. It is for the reason that when a building is burning down, I run away from it and they run to it. That makes me a coward and them a first responder, right? (laughs) So that is what's cool about them. Now, Jesus was a first responder. Go home, I challenge you. Go home and read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And look at all the instances in which you see Jesus moving toward the need and not away from it. As a matter of fact, that is what got him in trouble. 
when you look at the Pharisees, the Pharisees talk about Jesus, they say, it makes no sense. Here you've got this religious teacher, but he hangs out with sinners, and he hangs out with tax collectors, and he hangs out with people who are adulterers. It makes no sense. Why would he, if he was really God, why would he hang out with all these people? This is the wrong question. The question is, how could he not if he really is a first responder? Because being a first responder, being a rescuer, being a hero means you move toward the need, not away from it. In John chapter 4, one of the neatest stories that you'll find in the Gospels is there. We have Jesus going to Samaria. We talked a minute ago about Samaria and the Samaritans. Jesus goes to Samaria, and he meets a woman at a well. This woman has been married five times. Each of those five marriages ended in divorce. She's now living with a man who won't give her his name. And she's embarrassed about what she's gone through, embarrassed about her situation in life. She goes to the well in the heat of the day because she does not want to run into other people. She does not want to have to explain herself again, talk to people about what she's gone through. She encounters Jesus at the well. The Bible says that Jesus tells her, if you only knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you new life and it would be like a new spring inside of you, a new spring of life. By the way, that's where we get our church's name. But I want to take your attention for a moment to verses before that story. Just before that story, the Bible says, Jesus left Judea and returned to Galilee and he had to go through Samaria on the way. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Now, we're talking about the trip through Samaria where he met this woman at the well. Now, what I want to share with you is that geographically that is not true, right? He did not have to go through Samaria to get where he was going. And it, for us, we don't pay a whole lot of attention to that. But if you were in the, in the day and time in which this was written and you read that Jesus had to go through Samaria to get where he was going, big red flags would be going on and you would be thinking, that's not true, Because good Jewish people didn't go through Samaria when they were headed that direction. They went around Samaria. They would take the long trip around because they didn't want to encounter Samaritans. So a a Jewish person would read this and say, that's wrong. He didn't have to go through Samaria. So why would the Bible say it? If you were to drive by a fire station today when the alarms are going off and they're getting ready to dispatch firemen to a scene of some emergency... And you were to go up to one of those firemen and say, hey, you want to sit down and play a game of checkers? Right? He's going to say, no, I can't. I have to go to this place. I have to go to Derby. I have to go to this intersection. I have to go to this place. Why? Because that is where the need is. And I'm a first responder. That's my job. I have to go there. So when we read in the scriptures that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it was because there was a need there and he was a first responder and he had to go where the need was. That is what real heroes do. That's what makes heroes exceptional. That's what makes first responders exceptional is that they go where the need is. And and human nature is to do the opposite, right? We even have a name for this. If you're in a first semester psych class in college, they talk to you about the bystander effect. The bystander effect just basically means the more people that are around in a situation where someone uh, needs help, uh, the less likely it is that someone will help the more people that are around. And if you want to witness this, right, all you have to do is... Uh, bring in a, a, a toddler, little, you know, kid in diapers, and, and have a big group of adults around where there is an apparent need, right? There's a, an odor wafting around, and everybody kind of knows that there is, there is a need. But the more adults that are around, right, the less chance it is that someone is going to hop to right in that moment, right? We're all kind of looking at each other. Is somebody going to take care of that, you know? Okay, see, I'm going to have to get you guys to unscrew the halos to agree with that. Maybe, maybe it was just me who was there. Okay, all right. But that diffusion, we call that diffusion of responsibility. Somebody else ought to have to do it. 
My, I know they're in my small group, and I know that they're having a really rough time with the divorce that they're going through. But we're, there's eight people in my small group. When is somebody else going to step up? I, I, know that, I know that they had to go to the hospital and have that knee surgery, and I know that it's being tough because they don't, you know, they don't have people preparing meals for them and all that stuff. But after all, are there not 60 people working in this company? Do I have to be the person who takes a meal over to their house? The more people that are around us, the more we think, well... Somebody else ought to have this covered. Why should it be me? And if we want to be a bystander, that's an okay approach to life. But if we want to be a hero, it means moving toward the need. Secondly, moving along quickly, is that we need to practice the power of empathy. Practicing the power of empathy. When we read this story in Luke chapter 10, the Bible says that the Samaritan felt compassion for the bruised and broken man alongside of the road. He felt compassion. This is something having to do with his heart. Now, of course, in church, we talk a lot about the heart. There's a lot of scripture about the heart. And what we're not, ta- we're not talking about the pump in your chest that distributes um, blood throughout your body. What we're talking about is the seed of your emotions, the part of you that, that is, is logical and rational and emotional all at the same time, the part of you that makes decisions, that chooses whether to be rebellious or to obey God, that, that really that core of who you are, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the heart. And the Bible tells us that a person can either have a hard heart or a tender or a soft heart. Now, you know what it's like to be around a really soft-hearted person. Yeah, let's, let's just say there's a continuum. But if you go all the way over here towards being soft-hearted, you know what it's like. You don't take this person to a sad movie with you, right? Because if you take this person to a sad movie with you, right, they put themselves in the position of all the people going through the sad circumstance. And by the time you take them out of that movie theater, they are in a full-on depression, you're thinking about, do I need to get them counseling, grief therapy? I don't know what to do for them, but they're really in a bad place right now, right? Now, a hard-hearted person, you can take right into the middle of a really difficult situation where it is required of them that they step outside their own experience for a minute and feel and touch and understand what someone else is going through, and it is impossible. It goes over their head like this. They have no ability to temporarily step outside themselves and think, what is it like to be this person? What is it like to go through what they're going through? They can't feel it. The Bible says that being able to have compassion starts with having a tender or a soft heart. And the Bible even tells us what a hard heart looks like. Matthew 13, Jesus is uh, quoting Isaiah, and he says, When you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened. Okay, so pay attention. Jesus is getting ready to tell us what a hardened heart looks like. Their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and so their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me. It's a progression, right? It starts with our inability to hear, You ever met somebody who just loses the ability to listen to other people? They lose the ability to hear. And after they lose the ability to hear, all of a sudden they start to lose the ability to see. It's almost like you can can put reality right in front of them. And you can say, don't you see that this is happening? Don't you see that people in front of you are feeling this? And it is like they just don't get it. They don't see And the Bible says that when we shut our ears to a certain point, and then we shut our eyes, after a while our heart loses the capacity to understand. We don't get hard-hearted because we wake up some morning and decide, I want to have a hard heart, and I don't want to have compassion, I don't want to have empathy, I just want to be a mean person. That doesn't happen. It happens as a result of closing our ears and then closing our eyes, and then after a while our heart loses the capacity to understand. That's what a hard heart is. So quickly, I want to give you three enemies of empathy 
I hate to break an outline and shoot, and, and, and shoot over to a different outline, but I want to give you three enemies of empathy really quickly, and we'll move on. Here's the first one. The first one is tuning out, right? Tuning out is like, I was listening, but I'm not listening anymore, right? Anybody can relate to that. Especially, if, if, you're, if you're married and you're a guy in this room, antenna should go up right at this point, because we're going to talk here for a second. I told you this wasn't going to be a romantic series. Some of you guys are like, eh, he said it wasn't going to be a romantic series, and now he's going to harp on me. Only for a minute, and then we'll move on, right? But if you're a guy in this room and you're married, antenna should be up here for a second, because you know that guys and ladies talk differently about what happens in their life. Yes, we communicate a little differently. Right? So the research show, shows that if you're a guy and you have something important to say, you will say the main reality of whatever it is that you're trying to communicate. And then you might share details depending on whether you think it's important and whether you even remember any of the details about what it is that you're going to share. Right? If you're a lady in this room, you know that ladies don't communicate that way. right? You, you ladies, you tell your stories. You do it in chronological order. You share it with us from the beginning of when it all started all the way to the end, whenever the, the action stops. And you're going to share with us the, the order of events and even the emotional metadata. You're going to tell us about how you felt about what happened along the way. You may even stop and tell us how you're feeling about telling us how you felt at the time. right? And and so that's the way you tell your stories. By the way, guys, just this, this is for free, okay? But guys, when she tells you your, her stories, she's doing that to connect with you. She's doing that because by telling you what she's been through, she brings you into the process and she feels closer to you, right? That one's for free. But what I'm saying, <laughs> well, there you go, it's a freebie. But what I'm saying is this. It is easy sometimes, guys, for us, and we'll open this up to everybody in a second, but it's easy sometimes for us to tune out. We've we, we, we've, we've heard and heard and heard, well, I heard this story and I heard that story and I heard what she went through this time and I heard what she went through that time. And so after a while, we just start to tune out at a certain point. We're not even really there, right? Now, God has helped us as guys. You know, he, he kind of helped us a little bit. He gave us something called the phonological loop, right? The phonological loop means if you ask me what you just said, I can probably give you about seven seconds of what you just said before. I can play it back, right? But beyond seven seconds, I'm in real trouble, right? So, so you know, you guys, at least you got, we, we've, we've got that going for us. But it's sometimes, and, and I'm, I picked on us as guys, but also ladies, you know what this is like. Sometimes you have, you know, you have 16 different things going on. And you ladies can do this. You can direct traffic on 16 different mental tracks, right? But then you've got, um, you know, your kid or, or your husband or somebody else in your life who's trying to tell you about something that they're going through or something that's bothering them or whatever. And you've got all these other things going on. And it's, it's, it's almost very difficult to stay tuned in to what you're hearing when you have to be tuned into so many other things. But folks, here's what I want to tell you. If we really want to be heroes in our relationships in life, if we really want to make a choice to connect with the people that we love, then we can never afford to tune out from the people that we really do love. And I'm saying that to myself as, as much as anybody else. But sometimes it's better if we tune out the television. Sometimes it's better if we tune out the social media. Sometimes it's better if we tune out some of the stress. Sometimes life will take care of itself. If, if that's what it means for us to stay tuned in to the people that we love, because we cannot be empathetic if we cannot hear them. The second thing is anxiety. Anxiety is a killer of empathy. Because you get so stressed out about something that you're not even really able to hear the other person. The Bible tells us, and I don't have time to read the story, but in Mark 8, the Bible says the disciples got really upset because they didn't bring food with them uh, on, on their journey with Jesus. And so, you know, one of the guys thought the other guy should have brought the food, and the other guy thought they should have brought the food, and so they get into a big heated argument about it. And Jesus, in the meantime, is trying to teach them something. And he realizes that they're not even there. Right? He's trying to teach some kingdom principle, and they're back there arguing about who should have brought food. And Jesus, uh, Jesus basically said to you guys, are you seriously going to be anxious 
I mean, in a passage that really mirrors what we were just talking about, in that passage, he says, you have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? He's saying, guys, disciples, you closed your ears and you closed your eyes to the fact that I'm going to provide for you, so I really need you to tune into what I'm saying instead of letting yourself get so worried and tuning out on me. See, I'm that, I'm that way. I tune out on God because I'm so stressed out about everything else. And God is saying to Jonathan, don't you have eyes? Don't you have ears? Haven't I taken care of you in the past? Don't you think I'll be there for you in the future? And the third thing, and I don't even really have time to share it, but the third thing, and I don't think anybody in this room struggles with this, but you may have someone in your life who struggles with this. But the third one is rebellion. The Bible says that if a person is facing off to God and facing off to people in their life, that they don't have the ability to have a soft, empathetic heart, Right? And, and here's the reason for that. If you want to know the reason, I'll just give it to you really quickly. It, it takes too much energy to be rebellious. You cannot use your energy to be both rebellious and gracious at the same time. You've got to make a choice, one or the two. Right? So maybe you have somebody in your life who's choosing to be rebellious, right? and they know they're being a pain, but they're being a pain anyway. And you wonder why, no matter how much you try to tell them what they're doing, no matter how much you try to explain to them how much pain they're causing, you think they're never getting it. It's just like talking to a brick wall. Well, it's, it's, it's because they are making a choice to do the wrong thing, and they know it. And it takes a lot of energy to do that. If you, in case you know somebody who's choosing to do the wrong thing, they're aware. It takes a lot of energy to do that, and you can't be gracious at the same time. It just takes too much out of you, right? So we talked about that. It's important to empathize, right? So it's important to move towards the problem. It's important to practice the power of empathy. Here's the third thing, and that is it is important to answer the call to action. To answer the call to action. That is our, that, that is our minimum expectation of a first responder, is it not? Our minimum expectation is that when we call, they will answer. If you try to call Pizza Hut, right, today, and, and the phone rings a hundred times and nobody ever answers the phone, you might be agitated, you might be annoyed, you might be frustrated, right? But it would not be the same internal angst that you would be dealing with if you tried to call 911 and it rang a hundred times and nobody ever answered the phone, right? Because it is our basic expectation of a first responder that when, uh, when, when, when we are hurting, somebody will show up. James 2 says this, suppose you see a brother or sister who has no food or clothing and you say, goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm, eat well, but you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? What James is telling us is it's not, it's not enough to wish good for the people that you love. You're going to have to do good for the people that you love. You've got to answer the call to action. In Matthew 15, Jesus is teaching. He's got his disciples with him. And, and what happened a couple times is that people would start following Jesus as Jesus was walking and teaching, and they would not bring any food with them. They would literally forget that they were, you know, going away from their house and not have food and not have anything to eat. Now, Jesus must have been an incredible speaker for people to follow him and forget that they weren't eating, right? Because I have preached to a lot of Sunday crowds right around lunchtime, and I have never preached to anyone who seems to be forgetting that they want to eat, right? At some point when the service is over, everybody heads through the doors, gets in their cars, and goes to whatever restaurant they're going to, right? But Jesus, he, he obviously had a huge hold on these people. Um, they loved listening to him. They would forget to eat, and then they would get out to this remote place, and there wouldn't be any food. So that's what we have in Matthew 15. Jesus called his disciples and told them, I feel sorry for these people. My empathetic heart, I feel compassionate for these people. They've been here with me for three days and they have nothing left to eat. And this is the call to action. I don't want to send them away hungry or they will faint along the way. So Jesus tells his disciples, my heart goes out to these people and I want to do something for them, right? And I don't want to send them away. I want to act on their behalf. And here's where the disciples got a little messed up. 
right? They heard Jesus say that, and then they got intimidated by that because they thought, we can't fix this. The disciples said, where would we get enough food here in the wilderness for such a huge crowd? And Jesus asked, how much bread do you have? Now, if you know the story, it goes much like the feeding of the 5,000. In this case, they found that there was a little bread and a little fish, and Jesus took that and he multiplied it and fed a crowd of 4,000 plus people. But here's what I want you to key in on and take home with you today. Think about this. Jesus came to his disciples, his close circle, and he said, I want to do something for these people, and I want you to be a part of it. And they threw up their hands and said, I don't think, I don't think that's possible. See, I think that Jesus wants to do something for my kids, and I think Jesus wants to do something for my precious wife, and I think Jesus wants to do something for my coworkers. I think Jesus wants to do something for you. And I think there are moments in life where, where, where God comes to, to a person like me and says, through you, I want to do something for your kids. Through you, I want to do something for your spouse. Through you, I want to do something for the church that you pastor. And I think so often we hear that and we think, I don't know what to do with that. I don't have enough firepower. And we turn back to Jesus and say, I think you're calling me me to do too much because I don't see where any of that's going to come from. See, what we cannot afford to do, when, when God's heart is a heart of compassion and he wants to partner with us, what we cannot afford to do is to argue with him. And Jesus asked his disciples, what do you have? What do you have? Can I ask you a question? If you've read the Gospels and you've read the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, you ever wonder, why, why did God even, why, why did Jesus even ask, what do you have? I mean, yes or no, do you think that Jesus could have fed the 5,000 or fed the 4,000 without any loaves and without any fish? I mean, I think he could have. I think he could have fed them with just making it out of thin air. He, after all, he created the universe out of thin air. So I think he could, he could do that. Why would, why would Jesus talk to his disciples, bring them into the discussion, ask them to go find what was there? Well, this is, this is what I believe. I believe that God is so much a God of relationships that Jesus doesn't want to just do something by himself. If he's going to do something exceptional, he wants you to be part of it. He wants you to bring what you've got, and then he brings the amazing resources that he has, and we put them together, and as a result, we get to be part of something huge. See, I don't know how I get to be part of something like New Spring Church. This is above me. This is beyond me. I don't even know how I get so fortunate to be able to be a part of this. I bring so little to the table, but the reason that God has allowed me to do this is because Jesus wants to partner with me to do something. So when you see what God is doing on this campus, it is not like our staff is doing the heavy lifting. God is doing the heavy lifting. We're just bringing what little we have to the table, and we're bringing it, and God is doing the rest. And the only reason we get to do it is because God likes us and wants to do something with us. So I want to ask you, what do you have? What do you have? If you knew my grandpa, you knew he would pray with you about anything, anytime, anywhere, around anybody, that was just my grandpa. We prayed over the smallest of things. I, I truly believe right now that if, if before he passed, if I had called him and told him I was at J.C. Penney's and I was struggling to decide between the Navy slacks and the charcoal slacks, I believe my grandpa would have said, well, let's pray about it. <laughs> but here's what I want you to know about my grandpa, because he has prayed with many of you. Here's what I want you to know about my grandpa. My grandpa did not pray with you or he did not pray with me because he was a pastor and he somehow felt responsible to do that. He did not pray with me because somehow that was a crutch for him in life. My grandpa prayed with whoever he met, whoever had a need, because it was what he had access to. 
It was what he had access to. Here's the thing. My grandpa was not a neurosurgeon, but he stood beside hospital bed after hospital bed after hospital bed, and he was a hero, and he was a first responder, not because he knew everything that was necessary to help someone out, but because he had access to God, and he used it when he was there. He he stood beside tons of caskets, and my grandpa never received a license as a grief therapist, but he was a hero and a first responder to people who were going through grief because he had access to God, and he utilized what he had access to when he encountered a need. And let me tell you this, if you're a God follower in this room and all you have access to right now is to be able to touch heaven and to pray and to ask God for help, it is more than enough for whatever you or anybody that you've encountered is going through. You start with what you have. Bring what you have access to. There's a story, I've heard my dad tell this story over the years and other pastors tell this story of a a little boy who was scared of of storms. He was scared specifically of thunder. And uh, his mom had tried everything, you know, to make him feel better about stuff. And then one night that was a particularly bad thunderstorm. He was really just upset, you know, couldn't, couldn't be calmed down. And mom, you know, doing uh, her best, tried everything she could, nothing worked. And so she did what a lot of us parents do when all spells get spiritual. You know, she thought, well, maybe I can, maybe I can bring God into this somehow and that, and that will help him calm down. So she said to her son, she said, sweetheart, God will take care of us. It, you just need to, to, to lay down and close your eyes and think sleepy thoughts and know that God is, going to, God, God is going to be there for us and God will take care of us and you don't need to worry, right? So she extracts herself from her son and lays him in the bed, starts walking out the door and her son runs up to her, throws his arms around her waist and says, I know God will take care of us, but I need God with skin on. You will never be as much of a hero in anyone's life as the moment that you become God with skin on for them by showing them God's compassion. Never, ever. You, you, you've got, you, you, you have a lot of things, perhaps, that you can bring to someone. But can I tell you, no matter how much training you have, no matter how many resources you have at your disposal, you will never be able to fix a broken world. The only thing that you can do is to take the compassion God is showing you and be a flesh and blood extension of what God is doing with you. To choose to have that tender heart. I I need to be able to feel what other people are feeling. I need to be able to walk into the tension instead of away from it. And when the call comes, I need to be ready to answer the call. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you have given us not only an example of love, but that every day we experience your compassion and that we feel it coming from you. We thank you, Father, for your love. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. If you're in this room and you'd say, you know what, Jonathan, as you've been speaking, it's clear to me that I don't have a relationship with God. I'd like to. What what would it take? Well, here's what I want you to know, and this is what's really cool. Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting. He's made payment for the things that you've done wrong. He's made a way for you to have a relationship with God. But he's a gentleman, so he doesn't force it on anybody. So all that remains is for you to accept that gift. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say the words to a a very simple prayer. And my words aren't important. What's important is whether or not this really reflects what's going on in your heart. So I'm going to say these words. And if if you really identify with them and they feel like what you want to say to God, you can repeat this silently in your head to God. And if you do, it'll be settled once and for all. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus. Thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me. I know I do wrong things. 
and I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I'm making a choice to trust only in you, Jesus, and to ask you to make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, would you all look this way for just a moment? If you just prayed that prayer, we're so excited for you. As a matter of fact, we put together some materials for you. We've got a packet that has a DVD and a, a little book in it and a voucher for a free Bible. We just want to give it to you. So if you prayed to receive Christ, take that Talk to Us card. Uh, put your information down there. Check the box, I prayed to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services, the one by, co- by the coffee shop, and they'll give you that packet. Thank you so much for being here. Next week is week three of Lost in Love.